Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Ospensky. Today we are discussing chapter 9. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar and Sue Flanagan, doctor, businesswoman and grandmother. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening and thanks Pete and Sue for joining me. Well, welcome Pete and Sue. Hello there. Hello Alice, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, Lovely to have you with us. So today we're discussing Chapter 9. Pete, did you have something you wanted to say before we get going? Only, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm only thinking that, you know, um, on this chapter, it, it refers back um, to the previous chapter as though he proved some points. And I think that we should just ignore that. I, I think that we should go to the point that, that he's trying to make about um, the way that we re- relate to other dimensions, because... You know, anybody that's listened to the, our discussion on the previous chapter would understand that we're all in agreement that he hadn't um, actually proved anything of the kind. But nevertheless, he does have important things to say. So I wanted the, uh, just to say that we, we are going to concentrate on the extra dimensional nature of what he's trying to reveal to us or, or give us an opinion on in this chapter. Uh, rather, rather than just go round in circles disproving <laughs> his foundations. We've, we've done enough of that. Oh, absolutely. And I think what you're referring to there is his opening statement. And we'll just, I'll just read it. We have established yeah. the enormous difference existing between the psychology of man and of animal. The difference undoubtedly profoundly affects the receptivity of the outer world by the animal and how and in what. This is exactly what we do not know and what we shall try to discover. But you have 100% last chapter when he went through this whole example, we basically said, yeah, nice try, no cigar. Uh, however, we, <laughs> yeah. know, we know what he is. He, in this chapter, he is coming to some great points. And, and you're right, we, we do not need to rehash the why we don't think it's necessarily all these animal um, correlations to two dimensions versus three dimensions of us versus one dimension of a snail hold water because, in essence, we don't. But I will just scoot through the chapter and just point out a few points that he that he has made so mm-hmm. that we can justify why we think he is not um, holding yes. holding a, a, a valid uh, platform to get to the end where the interesting stuff actually happens so uh, yeah. so in essence um you 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 cool with that sir absolutely yeah absolutely yeah totally in agreement okay. there so he he starts talking about how animals see in two dimensions and that we before our brains learn to see also see in two dimensions but because we have concepts we can take what the eyes and the brain take in as vision and interpret it with some depth so we can say that is not flat that is that has uh, depth to it and that's a concept depth is a concept that animals don't have he he talks about the way we learn to 
recognise depth is because of touch. So he says a, a child will feel a ball or or feel things and start to understand that they've got depth. And he does give an analogy of somebody who was blind and regained their vision and the process they went through to actually be able to see, even though technically they could. So do we want to have a quick run through that sort of concept before we move on or, or are we good to say, yeah, I, we, we don't actually accept that animals only see in 2D? I'm quite happy to say that they don't see in 2D. I'll just give an example why not. Um, they wouldn't be, a cat wouldn't be able to climb up on a chair. If it only saw this as a flat surface, it, it wouldn't even dream of jump. It wouldn't take the risk of jumping at what it perceived to be a flat surface. And I understand, you know, um, the, the cat learns by touch just the same as we do. It, it understands its sight by touch in exactly the same way. Animals do exactly the same that we do. They test things out by touch. They realize that, oh, yes, I can go over the lip of this surface here. Oh, that feels comfortable. I'm going to jump on that and I'm going to lie on it. And the humans won't be able to sit down. And they do know. I mean, honestly, <laughs> they, go, they go through exactly the same processes as we do. You can watch them do it. Of course. Can, I've had dogs from being a puppy, and I've watched them explore the world in that way. They they never perceive it as just a flat like surface. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that was the only point I want to make, you know, on that bit. But, but it doesn't stop us from moving on. It doesn't. Just just very briefly as well, the the concepts of depth perception are certainly related to our eyes, our brain. Um, there's a famous experiment where they the fellow. Um, uh, what's his name, George um, Stratton, put on the inverted glasses and started to see the world upside down in three days. His eyes had reversed things back to the right way. Uh, there are times in our brain where we have got an opening to learn depth perception and if we don't have coordination of our eyes, we don't learn that. So that is that is a very complicated process and sight, Actually, all, all our senses are involved. That, that's a really interesting yes. point because... As I recall, and I, you will correct me if I'm wrong, I know this, but the human lens actually does project the image upside down and the brain has Absolutely. to put it the right way up anyway, doesn't it? Yes, yes, we, we do. Yeah. And we collect from both eyes. We collect from both eyes. It's upside down. We, we revert it and, and around the other way and then add in the depth. Yeah, yeah. because if you, if, you only, if you lost the vision in one eye, you would effectively see in two dimensions, wouldn't you? We get stereoscopic vision because we have the two eyes. You have great difficulties with depth perception. Yeah. And so, so when you have people who have a squint and are not lining up their eyes, especially in a childhood, but it's, it's better if you're an adult, but certainly when you're a child, our brain has an open and closing phases. So our depth perception yeah. comes in. And the interesting thing was the initial experiments on depth perception were done on kittens and puppies and they would blindfold them at certain times and oh. and leave them blindfolded and then when they came back to taking those the, the blindfold off these animals didn't didn't have depth perception and never developed it so I interesting mean, there's a whole lot of i mean this, this was post Spensky, yeah. but 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 the important yeah, point course. i think here is that it is in our there is a there is a lot of post-processing done in our brain from, mm. from the, the light impacting on our retina and so on forth from there. So I think um, 
you know, it's not necessarily we put in our third dimension. We do, uh, but animals do that as well. Yeah, that you know that that's the fact of it. They do. Yeah. So. So moving on then. Something I'll just I'll just point this out too. Okay. We have two eyes in the front of our head, but birds have eyes at the side of their head. Uh, so there's for for different animals, the location of their eyes possibly gives them different types of vision as well. Obviously, for a bird, it's beneficial to have eyes at the side to see side things. But for us and, and for cats and dogs and whatever to see, I, I don't know if that's any, anything of relevance. Well, most birds are actually seen, yeah. It's normally that if you are a predator, you have eyes focusing forward. And if you are the prey, you have them on the side so that your peripheral vision is a lot more focused on what's coming at you. So that's why a deer would need to, needs to be consistently scanning the periphery of uh, or lions and whatever else maybe it's uh, about to attack it, and a bird is the same, whereas humans are looking at exactly what they're going to go for. But that's probably not any relevance to a Spensky, but that's the, uh, that, that is the evolutionary process that those animals have had a better success rate of living when they've had their peripheral vision more uh, acutely tuned by seeing on the side. But uh, again, I don't know where the text is with the Spensky. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, that was just a, that was a little aside that uh, we may have it out. Um, Pete, you were going to say something as well. No, I'm not. I was just I just find it very 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 interesting what Sue's saying. I mean, I, I could talk about that, or I'm interested in this, but we've got to move on, haven't we? To the chat. <laughs> we do. So. We do. So with the Spensky, he's really hanging his hat on animals seeing two dimensions and they haven't got the third dimension and somehow they still manage to function in this world. As we pointed out, if they really did see in two dimensions, difficult. the cat and the dog would be find it very difficult. However, that was his point. He says, well, yes, even though they do see in two dimensions, they still manage to function in a three-dimensional world because where we get concepts and we remember, we don't have to remember a lot of things. A concept groups things together. So we don't have to remember that house, that house, that house, that house as separate objects. We can go, oh, they're houses. So as we're riding past in the car, we, we can just see houses. Whereas he's saying that an animal would have to remember that house and then that house and that house to remember the route home. To, if you, if you wanted wouldn't, to remember the route yeah. home. Wouldn't that give the animal a, a superior memory function? To us, I would have thought because, so. Be, yeah. Because that means that it's yeah. Because that means that it's having to memorise literally every experience that it has, and crucially, recall it. So yeah. uh, we uh, we find that difficult as humans. So that puts yeah. the animal higher higher up the tree than us. But I don't want I don't want to like be arguing the point against Dispensy. Can we move on to the idea that we yes. also have to have to find a way of interacting with the fourth dimension? And that is, I guess that's his point. He was kind of leading us to this to say, well, animals exist in, well, he's saying two dimensions, and we're existing in three dimensions. So what is it, the fourth dimension, fifth dimension, etc., are very possibly all existing in this space at the same time. And we are interacting with those dimensions. But in our three-dimensionality, we are interpreting things that we get from the fourth dimension in a three-dimensional way. So what, and I guess the, the, the extension of that is what are those things and, and what, have we, what are we missing? Pete? 
Can I just uh, mention, though, that what Uspensky didn't have available to him when he was writing this, something that we have now, that gives us a great example about things coexisting uh, at the same place. We have television. Now, I might be watching one channel on TV, but I've got to tell you, all the other channel signals are floating through my house at the same time. They're, exist they're existing simultaneously, occupying what I'm going to call the same space. And all I have to do is turn the TV to a different channel, and then suddenly I receive it. Now, if we are the receptors, if we are the television, as it were, we've got to find a way of changing the channel so that we can perceive the fourth dimension. Otherwise, we are just operating in a, in a field where that fourth dimension is quite clearly there, but we don't see it because we're not tuned into it. And he didn't exactly have that. Exactly so, I think. Those signals are there all the time. Would he have had radio back then? Well, maybe. I can't remember what year Marconi um, made that first transmission, if indeed it was Marconi that really first did it. There's a bit of contention there, but um, I can't remember the year. It was certainly the early part of the 20th century. It wouldn't have been commonplace. How many radio stations would there have been? They were probably only using it for um, military and diplomatic communication at first anyway. I don't know. Because this was two thousand. This was nineteen. This was nineteen twelve, wasn't it? When he when he wrote. It. He wrote yes. He wrote it in nineteen twelve. Well, published mm. it in nineteen twelve. So it was probably earlier that he was actually writing it. So I, I've got a feeling that it's probably about the time of of radio. But you know, there wasn't an establishment of loads and loads of radio stations on different frequencies at that time. I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. Now, that's a great example, and I, and I think there's the point. He, he, he was trying to make a point that all these dimensions are in the same place and we are functioning. One of the thoughts that I had about this, that's not a pun, by the way, because I'm saying <laughs> thoughts yeah. are, are, are not three-dimensional. I mean, our brain processes things, but it's a computer, so it can't have anything original. So if you get some inspirational thought, that doesn't, well, it can't come from your brain because the brain is a, is programmed by what you put in and what it just spits out what you've put out. So those inspirational thoughts, those brilliant ideas, have to come from somewhere else. Now, they're not three-dimensional. I can't get a, a, a measure and say, oh, that thought has, it's two inches long and five inches wide and it's, it's not measurable. So it's not... It's not something from this dimension yet. We are interacting with thoughts that I believe come from some other dimension and we're using them. We're pulling them down. We're, we're getting inspiration from from a place other than our three-dimensional dimension. And we see those thoughts as three. As I said, this comes back to our concept of consciousness, doesn't it? You know, what is it? it's consciousness that is allowing us to think and we've never been able to define consciousness in terms of three dimensions. No. And your radio example is a perfect one because it's saying when, when we, we grab a thought, are we tuning in? Are we putting in, say we want to do something, we want to make something uh, to do a task. I, here's one. The sewing machine. The sewing machine is a totally different action to hand sewing. And I've often wondered, you know, if you were trying to use the brain to work out how to do automatic sewing, you would possibly try and get something that, that did a stitch like you do hand sewing. Mm. And yet the invention is totally different, totally different. So it must have come, the idea has come from somewhere other than the processing of a what you've learned, what you see, 
uh, I think that comes also back to when uh, I think Aspensky at some point talks about if you went back to the 1700s and talked about having some mode of transport that took loads of people more than your horse and cart and and you know how would that happen people would just say more horses and more you know bigger bigger cart and more horses they're still thinking in that way so to get something original you can't look at what you've got in front of you i mean i don't want to go i don't want to go too far off subject here but if you read um some of the writings the notes that we have of um da vinci he he explains how these come to him better yet isaac newton these ideas come to him um, in his time, he would have known of, although I don't know whether um, Einstein would have written about it by then, but he certainly said that relativity came to him. The idea of, and it's, it's like it's a concept that nobody had had before. It, it really changed um, the view of, of the cosmos. And so it's not like he could have read somewhere. It wasn't built upon. It was like a flash of inspiration. Where does that come from? I mean, that's, to me, this is, this is incredible. But you know that you can actually set the intention to have something. Tesla did this all the time. He said, I want to work out how to do X. And he would go to this space in, in his unconscious mind. Like, you know, he creates this, um, this hall in, in his unconscious mind that's got different rooms in it. And he'd get, there's particular rooms where he would then build these machines in great detail and then when he brings that process out of out of the mind and into his laboratory he actually then is able to build the machine that's come to him the ideas that have come to him there but where does this happen because these are things yeah that's the we are third dimension interacting with the fourth and maybe it's not even the fourth maybe it's the fifth sixth who knows i'm talking here though about the idea of consciously making a decision to tune in to a different station unconsciously where the information that we want is there and we can then bring it into our world and, and bring it into our three-dimensional experience. And, and that's what seems to happen. Well, here's another it's a example. navigation process. Uh, yeah, yeah. And here's, here's another example. And I think Aspensky, oh no, Aspensky doesn't mention this, but I, I think he hints at it later on. But if I want to do something new, and, and I did this as a kid, I was uh, in primary school, I used to play on the monkey bars at uh, lunchtime. And the monkey bar was just, you know, you ladder up and then kind of bars across and then you ladder down, very simple structure. So we would work out all these different tricks. And the trick that I wanted to be able to do was the bars that are parallel. So I wanted to swing on one and then be able to go midair and grab the other one. So there would be a point in time, instead of going one hand and the other hand yeah. to get to, to the bars, I wanted to be able to swing like a trapeze person and be yeah. midair and grab the other side. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. But I couldn't do it. It was that I couldn't get the timing right. So what I did is I sat down and I imagined it and I imagined it and I imagined it until in my head, I believed I'd actually done it because I'd experienced the mid-air thing in my imagination. And after that, I could do that on the monkey bars. So I rehearsed it, mentally rehearsed it, in some other dimension or some other place in my mind, in, in the, in, but somewhere it clicked and then I could do it. Well, that's an NLP trick now. That's what they call an NLP process. 
that that oh, mental it? rehearsal or every single athlete does that every the the obvious ones that you'll see is rugby players um when the the kicker is going to kick for goal you know after a try you watch the process and you can actually see their eyes going from the ball to the posts back again and they're rehearsing it right there but they do this all the time all top athletes do this now i've got to tell you something i, I mean you probably you'll know from last week al i just bought an electric guitar have I, am I am I a guitarist? No, I've decided that I'm going to learn the electric guitar. I've got it sitting here next to me. And I do the same thing. Um, but something that I know from hypnosis, because this one of the reasons I'm doing it is a, as a, an experiment in this, this very field. And where does this come from? How does this work? So I practice with the conscious mind, and it's very, very difficult, fingering chords and so on. And I do it for so long. I'm practicing with the conscious mind. And then I make the decision that I'm going to leave it now. I'm going to let the unconscious mind process that. I guarantee you, when I come up the next, when I get up the next morning, what was difficult the previous night is a thousand times easier, as I've allowed because I'm not using the conscious mind anymore. I'm I'm using what what some people call muscle memory and God knows what else. But certainly something has gone on overnight, and I no longer have to. I'm I'm thinking of other things as I'm playing these three chords that I know. And then I'm, and then I've decided that okay, I don't want to play them in the same order. I want to be able to move from chord to chord. This is happening with astonishing speed, really astonishing speed. When you allow the unconscious mind to process this, and this is what athletes do, exactly what you did. They rehearse it. Oh, I was going to say people also do that for um, uh, recovery, post-op. Yeah. There's experience where they have been put people into to mentally practice the piano as opposed to physically practice it. And it's about 70% of the accuracy is there for the people who just mentally uh, put the process in. So it's, it's there, some of that will be neuronal connections. Some of it is, uh, you know, the brain itself just connecting through the... Um... Yeah, well, you, you, we know that we're changing, which, yeah, we're changing those pathways, aren't we? But there's another little element to it, which is intention. And intention mm, that's is right. not necessarily defined. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? It's our intention mm. that lets us navigate. That makes the difference. That's made the perhaps through that fourth dimension and pluck out. That's what I'm saying. We, it, it is. That's us tuning in. We're we're, we're tuning to a different cha channel. The intention is the is the op yeah. So, are we three dimensional beings operating? in a three-dimensional way, tapping into another dimension with that? Is that what, where, where all that other processing happens? Or are we high-dimensional yeah. beings coming down to a third dimension and at, from time to time slipping back up into those higher dimensions? Don't know the answer, but it's a very, very interesting thought, isn't it? I think this is what, mm. partly to me, is what Spensky is saying, that we can tap in. We can, we can navigate up and down. Or perhaps we've navigated down in the first place. So with the Spensky, where he's he is saying that right at the very end of his chapter, he says that it is obvious that animals at two dimensions and the lower animals at one dimension and us at three dimensions all coexist and interact with the world, uh, despite the fact that we have a consciousness that is that is anchored in one dimension. But we can access the other dimensions and function 
accordingly because they're all existing at the same time. So if we were looking at his animal example, do you know how we said last week, Pete, that, um, sorry, so you weren't with us last week, we had Steph, but we said that animals have a, a, a lot of intuition. Mm-hmm. You know, they, yep. they can really know something before we know it. They, and so I, I would say that that intuition comes from another dimension because intuition it's not a tangible observable thing it's just a gut feel that you know and then whatever it is uh manifests in this third dimensional space you get you you get a uh, glimpse of the future almost with an intuitive vibe to do something or not do something because something else is coming down the the line that you can't see uh I, i know that with um with say parking if I'm trying to park my car, I might go down this lane or that lane of the parking station just on a, a gut vibe and there's my perfect park because I set my intention, as you said, Sue, before I even started, mm-hmm. that I want the perfect park, especially with my car being so big that it's really hard to find that perfect park. But I guess with where's my point? My point is to say, are we tapping in to other dimensions unbeknownst to well, ourselves we have, because we haven't examined well, well. Well, if we, if we understand the three dimension, the, the the third dimensional experience we're having in three dimensional space to be what it is, then you necessarily have to be tapping into something beyond that because you've tapped into something that's immeasurable. Um, if you can develop, which you can, the faculty to perfect that, then you are uh, into this this area of creating your reality rather than observing your reality and where does and where does that come from you can't measure that ability at the moment we have no no uh, way of measuring it other than by the results how true, often do you set, how often do you set your intention for the car parking space how often do you find it um, over time if you practice it does that result happen more and more and more often those, those are the only ways you can measure it but you're not measuring it in terms of space so what are, what are we measuring at that point? So it's, to me, the very definition of, of something that we can't measure in terms of space takes it out of three dimensions. Maybe I'm wrong. comes back to our intangibles, doesn't it? Our intangibles being our consciousness, our intentions, our thoughts, I guess our directions in life. Um, the sliding doors that we open and close all through our pathway. Mm. And... Um, I think it's a very, very interesting concept as to where those sliding doors are coming in and out of. I think that's what you're, we're saying. They're coming in and out of that fourth dimension or above. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think Spensky makes an interesting point in this chapter in amongst all the uh, comparing animal dimensionality and mm-hmm. he says, uh, I see it, therefore it exists, is a common way of uh, interpreting this world. Well, if, if, it, if I see it or I can prove its existence, say, with a telescope or a microscope, mm-hmm. or therefore exists. He said the affirmation is the principal source of all illusions. To be true, it is necessary to say, I see it, therefore this does not exist, or at least I see it, therefore this is not so. I'm just saying, I, th- I think what he's trying to say there is that if we see it, we should accept that what we are seeing is an illusion. Uh, uh, that, that is deceptive and he's got a he has got a good analogy here about the idea of perspective i mean if you look down um a railway a straight railway track you get to the parallax point where it seems to 
to come to a point where, as you know, that all the way along that track, there is a uniform distance between the two lines. Uh, and, and we understand that. We, we don't have a problem with, with understanding that the illusion of the, tr the tracks coming together isn't what the reality of it is. It's interesting, though, that, that our perception of three dimensions does that to us. Why, does, why do we get parallels? Yeah, and why do we then not even think twice about it? Or, or we know that, that we don't say, oh, my apparatus is, is telling me this. It must be right. We are, in fact, going, yeah, well, we know for a fact that those lines are parallel. They don't go together. So we just ignore that that's what we see. And we yeah. say, well, that's what we see, but that's not reality. But that's an illusion, and yeah. That's an illusion. So we, we know that. We don't even... We don't even necessarily uh, analyze it every each and every time. If you had to analyze it, even something close to you, you know, you wouldn't see it in three dimensions. You'd consciously have to think about it. The conscious mind could only handle seven plus or minus two pieces of information at any given moment. You couldn't exist in the world if we had to analyze that. We just accept it. The parallax, the parallax effect, actually is what gives us depth perception. Without it. And, and the degree of parallax is something that our incredible computer, the brain, is managing for us all the time. It's saying, okay, they're coming together at this angle, which means that that must be a certain distance away. It's not close, it's far away, and so on. It's not, it's not measuring in terms of feet and inches or centimeters and meters. It's just doing it in, in a way that's practical for us to have an experience in the world based on what we see or, or are told we see. If trees, if a tree on the horizon appeared as big as a tree three feet away from us, we couldn't live in that world. So things have to appear to get smaller. It's doing a measuring trick for us. Brain is an exceptionally good functional filter. Hmm. And that's what, that's what it does. It filters in and out. And, and it... it it manages. I mean, it has a, a a wonderful function where it, you know, keeps everything on the day to day running, allows us to react, but it also is a, a beautiful filter. And I think that's what Vespensky uh, is talking about: is the fact that because it is filtered, because our world is filtered, you know. I mean, I've often thought that the the, the very word universe comes out of one song, so we each sing our own song in this particular universe. We see it our own way and we, we navigate it our own particular way and we'll never have two people having the same experience and um, even living in the, side by side in the same space. So I, I think that's, a, um, that's something that we tend to just automatically look past every single day. Mm -hmm. And as you say, Pete, if we didn't, we wouldn't be functional. But there is a great no, value in reflecting on... What are we filtering out? And this, I think, is the point of Herspensky's chapter. I mean, he talk, comes back to affinity at the very end, that very concept that means nothing but that we see, we, we work with on a day-to-day -day basis. It goes on forever. What does that really ever mean? But it's, it's how we tag, how we grab bits and pieces out and, and make sense of them. So I, I think this is a fascinating chapter. Okay, well... Because I think the point, we, we are processing illusion on a daily basis and converting it into what we can function with in the world. If, if we saw uh, everything as 
well, if we believed everything we saw was as it was, then we would experience the train tracks with the train running out of track. You know, it's like, so we, we make these, we subconsciously make all these different adjustments to the illusion that we see. So if we extend that further up, what other things are we missing that we're filtering out that aren't uh, picked up by our apparatus as a recognisable thing that are coming from other dimensions? Even down to the example of we we can't we can't uh, put up our hand and pick up a radio signal. We need to have something that picks up that signal. So is it our consciousness that is limiting us to these interpretations of the illusion? And if our consciousness had a, a different piece to it, could it pick up other other parts of what's coming through and make sense of them? I don't know. I, I think one of the interesting experiments that gets done recently has been done long way after Spensky is people being shown pictures and monitoring their brain waves and finding that they see the picture before the picture comes up. And that's been you know, repeated many, many times. So how do we see something before it actually comes up into our into our vision? There is a timing issues. There are all sorts of issues that are just in our perceptions that we still don't understand. Now, we don't care about that in the day-to-day process, whether our brain has picked up something out of the, the brain waves or whatever, whatever it is, a moment before it's actually come through. Uh, I think all of these things point to the fact that it's not as simple as we see it. Living on this earth is not as simple as we see it. And um, and I think that possibly looking at Spensky's, from Spensky's viewpoint is because it's perhaps not the full picture. And that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? What is the full picture? So how could how can your brain know that something is coming before it actually arrives? We go back to our atoms that we discussed very early on the piece. Atoms appearing in and, and, and appearing out, appearing when you focus on them, saying you know it appear, the uh, subatomic particles coming to to manifestation. So that's a little bit off the track. I understand that too, but it's just a, an example of the fact that all is not necessarily as it seems. Yet we filter in order to make make uh, ourselves functional. But how interesting to stop right now and start and think, what are we filtering out? And I think that's the purpose of Spensky's chapter, is he wants us to say, what are we filtering out? And to begin to look at it. That's the, I don't know if you agree with that. That's how I, I read the chapter. Well, here's his quote. Two subjects living side by side but possessing different psychic apparatus will inhabit different worlds. The properties of the extension of the world will be different for them. We can have different beings living side by side, possessing different capabilities of tapping into different dimensions. And I think You've got a dog, haven't you, Al? I did have a dog. You've got a dog. I don't anymore. You did have a dog, I know. You ever sat and seen a dog looking at the wall? Uh, or looking I at do. something. I see it. So let me just suggest. You, yeah, yeah. Let me just uh, say that um, when we talk about what we filter out, um, which is what you were saying, Sue, I'm going to suggest that animals don't filter out anything near as much as we do. Somehow, we have been shut down and locked down. We could go into that. That's another story. In a way that animals haven't. I think animals still see things 
you can call them extra dimensional if you like that we don't see that we've filtered out and they, they could be seeing things that are actually three-dimensional and that there are aspects of the third dimension that we've filtered out i'll give you an example of how that can happen when the conquistadores went across to the new world back in the well, it's the, the 15th century, the first, but it's going to be the 16th century when the real ones, when the, when the mass uh, conquistadores went over. Natives on the shores did not see those ships. They didn't see those ships until the people actually got off them. Why? Because they had no way of actually seeing them. Their brains just filtered it out and said, um, what's actually there, you don't need to see because that can't possibly exist. This is well documented. So what is it that we are filtering out that animals are not filtering out? Because they're definitely seeing things. Uh, yeah, my understanding of that story, Pete, was that the, the, the witch doctor could see or the 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 uh, That's right. And the, and the people and the people see. wouldn't believe and the people wouldn't believe them until they were being killed on the shore. Well, that, I mean, I'm being a bit facetious there, but yeah, that that is the, that is exactly what happened. The the shaman uh, of of the people could see them and pointed out that. The gods were arriving, or whatever it was that they called them. And there's the cat seeing something else. Yeah, the cat, he's... he's well, sorry, I was just say another thing. We, we think one, two, three, four, five dimensions. We're thinking in a linear aspect. Mm. But what if the cats were seeing, they were see, experiencing dimension number 2A? As opposed or minus to one. Our <laughs> two. Or minus, yes. I mean, what I'm saying is, you know, I mean, we have this assumption that it will go in a level that is uh that we are navigating so is it yeah. is it linear and i and it's just yeah, well, you know, i mean how do, how do we know but it's, it's just another thought in this whole yeah. process isn't it that's really good well the con the concept from last chapter where spensky talked about a point in time having an infinite number of points in time existing he says it perpendicular but but in essence one point in time has infinite possibilities i wonder if the the cat or the dog is seeing other all the other possibilities and we're just filtering it into one potentially yeah, and they're going i, I think so look at, that. Ooh, look at that i feel we're more limited than they are and is it because we have developed what the spensky talks is our better thing being concepts is it because we've just started generalizing the world oh well, that's a, a bunch of trees or that's a, a, a house and not thinking, well, hang on, that's a tree and that is you, that tree has a unique, even though it's bark and we, we call that bark, that tree's bark is different to that tree's bark. Yeah, we, we, we are so generalist. Mm. Uh, if the animal has to remember everything, it's just pulling it all in and going, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. Potentially, but then it's got to recall it. I, I, you know, it comes back to: is that a lesser way of of existing, or a or a higher way of existing? But are we filtering out other dimensions higher as well? Like we're filtering yeah, I think, out our I own think dimension. We are. I, th I think I think we're giving ourselves that much. If you understood how much of a the, the spectrum of energy frequency that we know about, we are seeing. Our visual um, input is we are actually receiving and acknowledging something like 0.005 of 1% of what we know to be the frequency spectrum. Of that, 
our brain will only give us another 0.0 something of what of what of the light that actually comes in we don't see everything that's in front of us at all times we don't there's loads and loads and loads of detailed research uh, on this you can look at in fact i'll send you the links to it, al um there's tons and tons of it so we know of um an energy spectrum that goes up you know beyond x-rays gamma rays and so on which we obviously cannot see you know have you ever seen an x-ray no you haven't um but we know that they're there and, and we and we have frequencies sub sub frequencies as well these ultra frequencies that we also don't see or hear we don't perceive them at all we we have this tiny speck of the frequency spectrum that's based on light so when we're we are interacting with the world based on what we see um, whether or not what we see is an illusion is one thing which we we're pretty sure that it is but but we're only creating this illusion out of this tiny tiny portion of the spectrum that we know and by the way that's the spectrum that we can perceive of it would be foolish to consider that there won't be beyond what we can perceive other other frequencies of light um you know the the idea that the speed of light is finite it's only finite if if relativity is absolutely 100 percent accurate and cannot be changed how about this even einstein knew that it was flawed and of course of course we can posit the idea that there's some that things can go faster than the speed of light it would be ridiculous to, to see such a limit it, it really would it, it would be nonsense and uh, people that are working on cosmology already have to invent now things uh, called um, photons and, and positrons and gravitons as well to explain the anomalies and, and they they're knowing that they're going to have to work to unify physics they're going to have to work with trans light speed as one of the one of the um, attributes of the universe and I'm just going to raise this interesting concept that comes up time and time again in, in philosophy, isn't it, is that this world is an illusion. And I'm just going to raise a thought. I think that what we see is real, but I think that what we see is a part of the huge reality. So we only are seeing the bit that comes into us. So if there was, I mean, if I go back to the two-dimensional being and who's moving through, say, a a box of balls and and sees the red one and the blue one and the green one in time. We've gone through this thing before. Uh, if they decided they were going to go from the red to the around to the blue first by setting an intention for a different path, what they would see is real. There is a red ball, there is a blue ball. They set a different intention. They went for the red and then to the green. Somebody else did red, red to the green. It's not an illusion. They've both just had the same, a different experience in the same realm of all possibilities. So for them, if, for each person, it's, yeah, but real, I think, it's just limited. It's just, you know, we just choose a different path. I think the term real is um, something that Aspensky's addressed in the past. Real, the real cause of something or the real way our consciousness interprets something that's two different things he, he talks about the example of the two-dimensional being seeing someone's hand on the the desk and only seeing five circles and having no concept of the hand and the person and the life etc etc so they they might see 
five real circles, but it's got nothing to do with what it really is. However, um, in this chapter, Spensky says, uh, in other words, the three-dimensionality of the world is a property of the reflection in our consciousness. And if this is so, then, he says, it is obvious that we really prove the dependence of space upon the space sense. I don't understand what that last sentence means. Uh, and if this is so, then it is obvious that we have really proved the dependence of space upon the space sense. I presume the space sense is how we sense space, our and the mo And motion in it. Mm. And when he says the space sense, He's, he has talked in this chapter about how all of the senses come together and, and, and it's the combination. Instead of talking about sight, hearing, touch, and so on, um, if, you bring, if, if the, the brain takes all of the sensory input for, for an object, and, and that's called the space sense. So, for example, we could see something coming towards us, if we know what that object is, we would also use our hearing sense to give us to work out how close it is. Let me tell you, if, if we saw a, a car coming down the road towards us, you could hear the Doppler effect of how, clo how much closer it's getting and know when you need to jump out of the way. We would use both, just the not just the sight, we would use all of the senses that we are getting input from. Now, obviously, we're not touching the car as, as it's too far away from us. If we don't jump out of the way, believe me, we will be touching the car and we will know how close it is, what its mass is and what its speed was as well. We will have all of that input, but we, we, we use as much of the sensory input to give us this, this sense of what Spensky is talking about here. I think when he's talking about the space sense, he's talking about the combination of input from all of our five senses to give us space sense, not just visual. When he's talking about mm. space sense, I think what he means that's what i that's what i took from when he was describing it yeah now that makes that makes a load of sense and, and he then he then extrapolates and says well okay if that's how we interpret the third dimension what extra sense do we need to see the fourth perpendicular see the fourth dimension and i, I will read this quote out sorry go on pete no i'm just saying the one, what we need is what he knew about, which, uh, which virtually every culture in the world explains in the same way. I mean, this, we, we can talk about the third eye and, you know, and, and even if you want to get scientific and we can talk about the pituitary, the things that we somehow in our societies have had shut down. Mm -hmm. That's yes. how we access it. We actually have the, the television receiver or the radio receiver already built in. What we haven't done is taken it out of the box or we've put it in a box and we've taped it, taped it up. What we've got to do is work at untaping the box and pulling that television out of the box, uh, that internal television, so that we can tune in to all of these other frequencies and have this fabulous experience. That's the one. That, that's the extra set. That's what we now call extrasensory. Exactly, and that's what I think this whole book is is, is That's where we're to. going. Okay. That's where we're going. That's where we're it? going. How do, yeah, how do we do it? And I'm going to read the excerpt where he starts. This is at the beginning of the, the journey, really, where it's the first time mm -hmm. he's really sort of said. And he goes, okay, and we shall grant that if in us there develops the fourth unit of reasoning. So he's just said, well, you know, we've got the all the senses to give us a third um, unit of reasoning. Yeah. So, 
Um, so if we de there develops the fourth unit of reasoning, reasoning as different from the concept as the concept is different from the perception, so simultaneously will it uh, with it will appear for us in the surrounding world a fourth characteristic, which we may designate geometrically as the fourth direction or the fourth perpendicular, because in this characteristic will be included the properties of objects perpendicular to all properties known to us and not parallel to any of them. In other words, we will see or we will feel ourselves in the space not of three but of four dimensions and in, and in the objects surrounding us and in our bodies will appear common properties of the fourth dimension which we did not notice before or which we regarded as individual properties of objects or their motion. This is what he's saying. If we extend our consciousness or, or as you're saying, Pete, use what we've already got and get the, exactly. the manual out and start reading it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> plug, the, yeah, plug it in, start tuning it. Uh, we will have a different experience of this world. And I think that is, that's the, the, the beginning of the really great stuff that this book has to, to offer. Mm. I think you're right, Alice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you, you don't think it puts people off when he starts then so, talking about, I've got to tell you, if I tune my tele, if I get my television out of the box and I start tuning in, the last thing I'm looking for is, oh my God, this must be a fourth dimension because I'm seeing things that are perpendicular. I'm not looking at that. I want, I want a wow moment. Um, my wow moments mm -hmm. are not the idea of going back to three-dimensional geometry to describe this fourth-dimensional experience. Well, it won't be. It won't be something you could explain even with language, I would imagine. Um, I know, but, I that, but he's tried to. <laughs> yeah, I think he's tried to. Yes, I think he's he's still pulling the analogies from the first seven chapters. Yeah, I know. anyway, but, but I, I think we go beyond that. I think this is what this is where we're looking at something very interesting. Tune in, turn on. And but I think also he does discuss on on page ninety nine of our version. Uh, Pete, he says. But discerning two kinds of phenomena, two kinds of motion, the animal explained one of them by means of some incomprehensible inner property of the objects, i.e., in all probability, it will regard this motion as a result of the animation of objects and the moving objects as animated beings. And I think this is where Espensky is starting to point out that we already see it. We're already seeing two or three dimensions above because we see animation, we see life. And uh, we just don't. Yeah, that, that is that is a point he makes. That that was, and we haven't pulled it out because we sort of ignored his animal relationship stuff. But um, but he does point out that if animals see objects that aren't moving, like solids, as motion, like he's explained in earlier chapters, angles looking like they're moving. I mean, whether we accept it or not, this is his analogy, or, or spheres having motion. But then, as different to that moving, so uh, moving objects that are really moving in our three-dimensional space, the, the animal would see two different motions, but he'd be able to look at one as something, well, I don't think an animal actually would even get out a measuring thing and go, oh, look at that, that's that's a bit of dimension I can measure. Uh, and the other, where something is really moving, it would look like it had its own free will. And I wonder if that's okay, why well a dog chases a car. I don't know. But well, we see life on, and animation that. all the time. We see life around us everywhere. So is that what he's saying to us? 
Open your eyes. We're, we're automatically seeing, according to Ospensky, we're seeing two or three dimensions ahead. We're not necessarily interpreting it correctly, but we are seeing it. We see the how, effect. How of would it. that be different than a dog? Dog I don't think it necessarily is. I, I think I don't. forget the animal. I think come back to us yeah, I do as human beings and put us into that chapter, that paragraph. We see life all the time. We see the difference between someone alive and someone dead. You know, um, we see that. So he's saying, regardless of whether we interpret it correctly, we are automatically we are seeing a few dimensions ahead according to his analogy. Just what where he's that. saying. Where he's saying something appears alive is where its motion is arbitrary, and that's with life. We, we, if we look at a car moving, we can say, well, it's going 10 k's an hour and it's going this distance. But us, our life, it, it is not measurable in those ways. It's incommensurable in those ways because it's, it's arbitrary in the sense that it seems to have, and I'll, I'll use the expression, a life of its own, like at we, um, Okay. Predictable. If you if you saw if you saw a car being driven by a drunken person weaving and slopping and and then would you then assume that it was alive? No, you wouldn't. You know, it's a car. Oh, Pete, why do you have to be so logical? <laughs> why do you? Have I'm not to be being so logical. logical. <laughs> I'm, because I'm just thinking that that you know the yeah. the, the things that we do see as as living are are interesting. Like if you see rabbits running in a field, and they do seem arbitrary. You you'd never predict. The, the direction they're going in, but that's not what tells me that it's alive. I, I, I mean, what, what's the difference? There must be a difference somewhere. We, mo we, must, be, we must be perceiving something about an animal be, having an arbitrary movement and perhaps the, perceived, the perception of a machine that has an arbitrary movement. We're seeing or feeling something beyond, beyond that. I know not what, but, but we, are, we are seeing and sensing something, aren't we? I think that is what he's talking about in this paragraph, that, there, that yeah. there are times when we clearly see some things into yeah, multi-dimensions. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We, yeah. We, so yeah, you're I dead think, right. You know, we pick it up. We just don't put it in in our terminology. Yeah, no one can create life here on this yeah, planet. It has to come yeah, from somewhere else. Oh, can they? Well, they, How do they do that? Yeah, they're doing, they're, doing, they're doing it now. You can Google that as well. We're only talking about, you know, um, animating um, things at this, this, the single cellular level at the moment, but we are we are approaching um, animating things. Um, have a look at it. Google this. There's been experiments. I will where do that. Yeah. I mean, we're not we're not talking about creating Frankenstein yet, but you know, Frankenstein's monster yet. But when, but we but we are talking about you know using uh, galvanism to to an, animate um, unicellular well, whatever the heck they are. So whether or not we're staying closer, well, all the elements for, 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 for what we call life are, are present in the universe. So we're starting to get some very good nitty-gritty, aren't we? Yeah, well, he does. He do, does talk about that, but he also talks about our perception of, of things that we think are new every day. For example, no, sorry, we think are new and potentially are not new. They're the same one coming around uh, again, he says the spring. We think this spring is different from last year's spring is different from the spring before. But he says, well, that's like an animal thinking a new sun rises every morning. It's it's just that we haven't put the pieces together to say that in another dimension 
that is the one spring that we're re-experiencing. Um, it's a bit unfair though, isn't it? Because it is different in, in our perception every time. The same, the same flower doesn't open every year. And if I, t and if I take some, if I, if I take plants out of my garden, they won't flower next year either because they're not there. So it's not the same spring. Hey, in, in what sense does he mean the same spring in that sense? I can understand the sun because people can be fooled into thinking the, the same, you know, uh, the, uh, the sun is rising uh, different each day. I don't know. I'm actually, I don't even know about that. Do people, even when they thought that the sun revolved around the earth, I think we all knew it was the same or thought the same sun because we create, we, we gave it a godlike status and we didn't say, oh, it's a different god turning up tomorrow. Yeah. We're probably going off anyway, track. Anyway, anyway. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, but what he says is for the animal, a new sun rises every morning. For, for the animal, a new sun rises every morning, just as for us, a new morning comes up every day and a new spring with every year. The okay. animal is not in a position to understand that the sun is the same yesterday and today, exactly in the same way that we probably cannot understand that the morning is the same and the spring is the same. That's what he says. Well, I know. But how, how are you de defining the idea of spring arriving for it to be the same? Yeah, I, I'm not 100% convinced that unless, what he's saying unless, there. Unless, unless, spring, unless the concept of spring is in a different dimension, but we are seeing the effect of that extra dimensional same spring turning up. But then that means that in this, in this other dimension that it's going to be subject to three-dimensional time which we've already spoken yeah. of in previous chapters as being illusory. So, so it's interesting. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not. So, yeah, hmm. if it's the same spring yeah. um, and it's coming around again, it has to be subject to time because what happens to the summer and the autumn and the winter in between? They should all be turning up at the same time, shouldn't they? Maybe in Australia it does. You always have a, you have a per perpetual summer, don't you? But we don't here. We do. Well, here in we Britain, don't. We do. we, we, we virtually never have a summer at all. <laughs> Usually on a Tuesday, I heard. Occasionally on a Thursday. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, <laughs> depending. No, but it's an interesting <laughs> thought, isn't it? If, if if we can, if it's the same spring that keeps turning up, then that adds an extra dimension to what's going on. Then I think he's saying perhaps you're seeing a an aspect of the same spring. Hmm. It's a different aspect. <laughs> We're seeing yeah. it's the same spring, but why? But I've just why are we seeing it different? Great, though, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just going to go because I know our time is coming out. But the last chapter, last sentence of this chapter, I think is very interesting. Infinity, however, is not an hypothesis but a fact, and such a fact is the multi dimensionality of space and all that it implies, namely, the, the unreality of everything three dimensional. And I think that is a, a very undefined but very interesting concept. That uh, The very beginning of that sentence, though, he has a go at positivism again uh, for positivism to ensure its existence. Well, no, 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 but I think, it's, I think what he's saying is he's equating it to, to how we measure the world. For positivism to ensure its existence, it was necessary to annihilate infinity somehow or at least yeah, call it an hypothesis. Sure which may or may not be true. Infinity, however, is not a, an hypothesis, but a fact, such as a fact is the multi, and such a fact is the multidimensionality of space, and all it implies, namely, unre yes, the unreality of everything, the three-dimensional. But I think that's what he's tying in, 
we shut down infinity because it's too hard for us to explain this world if we keep it in. But it doesn't mean it's not actually... Well, you can't explain it. You can't explain it. This is why um, gravitational theory is, is now separated from cosmology, which is based on relativity uh, at the moment. So you know, there, there is this huge gap that, that infinity is the gap. Infinity is that huge elephant in that room. Uh, yeah. of yes, he's a mathematician, this. remember? He is a mathematician. Yeah, exactly. So and he, he, he understands this. He, he has really understands very, this. He has looked very clearly yeah. at infinity as a concept. To me, this is this is where he is in his element. Uh, you know, he's he absolutely understands this. And when he comes out and says, well, you know, infinity does exist, he knows that it does. It, it would be actually illogical for it not to. But it's got it's got but it's got gaps in it. It's got holes in it, which is our third dimensional. Yeah, context. we can't we can't we can't where we, where we try it to drag to it into dimension. that three dimension. Yeah, we can't. Map that's where it the holes come in. Third dimension, and that's and that's what he's saying. It exists. Yeah. We try to put it into three dimensions. We come unstuck. Therefore, there must be a multi-dimensional. Mm. Uh, mathematically, there must be a multi-dimensional uh, existence. Yeah, which I think is a very 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 interesting. I think, I think we always could have started at the end of the chapter. Uh, it would have been, yeah. you know, I think that's, that's his whole point. That's his point. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's his whole point of this chapter. There yeah, is a multidimensionality of space, and we don't explain it properly because we're too busy filtering everything and chucking yep. infi infinity into a, a too hard basket. So yeah. stay tuned. Dun 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 for chapter ten as we really start getting more and more into this really interesting stuff. Let's 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 pull infinity out of the box. Yeah. Well thanks Pete and Sue. This has been a rollicking good conversation and I think I, I think we did the right thing by throwing out the, the the things that we've already discussed as we don't we don't think hold water and really getting into yeah. where this book is, is heading and what this book is all about yeah. in in the interesting stuff. So thank you very much for joining me and I look forward to uh, joining me for Chapter 10 onwards. Thank yeah, you very much, Alice. Yeah, great. And thanks everyone for listening and we look forward to your company for Chapter 10.